Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Well, as they say in podcast world, the tables are turned and I am the interviewee and not the interviewer on this episode of Inside the Banjoverse. This is actually a podcast interview that I did for a great friend of mine in Washington State called Jasmine Falk Dickerson. And make sure you check out her podcast, which is called I Want You to Meet. And I was uh, very happy to oblige and be interviewed by Jasmine in uh, 2020. So this is deep pandemic and we talk about uh, what it's like to be a musician at this time and uh, you know we're coming out of it now so uh, but what it was like at the time to be to be in a severe lockdown Uh, but also my entire backstory in terms of my influences and what drives me forward what makes me interested as a musician and why I got into the banjo and all of that good stuff so I hope you enjoy this interview with me by Jasmine Falk Dickerson. Hey everyone, I'm Jasmine Falk Dickerson. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today, a world-class banjo player and founder of the sensational quartet, We Banjo 3, shares the smooth and rocky journey of his musical and teaching career, along with his personal evolution through life's challenges and surprises. Using various methods of self-care, he has reinvented himself as a performer and a musician and an entrepreneur. I'm sure you'll find many nuggets of wisdom in our wonderful conversation. Today, I want you to meet, from Ireland, Enda Scahill. Hey, Enda. How's it going? Welcome. Good, yeah. good, good. Thank you. Nice to be here. Absolutely. Wonderful to have you. And you are coming in from somewhere in Ireland. Where? Yeah, Galway, Galway City. So mm-hmm. I live on the west coast. Uh, Galway is probably the third largest town in Ireland, uh, population of about 80,000. Uh, three colleges, so a very vibrant town, huge arts community. Um, and in 2020, we're the cultural capital of Europe. Uh, sadly, most of it has been cancelled so far. Uh, sadly. Because of this coronavirus, but uh, yeah. great, great, great city for music, for art, literature, poetry, 
drinking. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. I I appreciate you mentioning that, you know, we are during the coronavirus time and I have started most of these interviews asking, how are you coping with it? What are you doing um, that is keeping you active? And as a, especially as a touring artist, this is a really challenging time. Everything is, you know, canceled or on hold. So how are you spending your days? Um, so we tour about five months a year. So then I'm home seven months a year anyway. And when I'm home, I don't work. So my day to day now is largely similar to if I wasn't on tour. Okay. Um, except that my son is at home the whole time. He's 10. So rather than getting those delicious seven hours when he goes to school every day, <laughs> <laughs> he's home the whole time. And and my wife is home. She she's uh, she works a couple of days a week mm-hmm. uh, and she's in frontline work as well, actually. Um, so it's fine. We're, we're like, it's weird. I was on tour mm-hmm. and then all of the lockdowns just happened and we had to come home with 10 days left on our tour and race home and try to change flights. And it was a real panic. And, yeah. you know, coming home to a country that was shutting down and that was, you know, kind of hitting the shock of what was happening because it was happening so fast. Yeah. And then to arrive home into quarantine, essentially, because because I had been away, uh, it was very jarring and very disconcerting. And, you know, the rising panic that was largely sweeping the globe and certainly uh, Ireland. Sure. Um, so we're home seven weeks and it took a month at least to really let all of that adrenaline and fear and that kind of just filter down. Um, and now we're in a fairly tidy rhythm. We have a lovely house and a lovely garden and the weather has been stellar, very un-Irish. So we've done tons of gardening. I built two raised beds, filled them with soil, and now I've got loads of... Because this Amazing. is going to be the first summer. Yes, yeah, the first summer in 15 years that I'm going to be in Ireland. Wow. Because I've always been on tour. Yeah. Wow. And see, that those are the moments where I, I appreciate you going down the list, saying it as such a matter-of-fact and casual way, even though I know for a lot of people it has been a struggle and it's been really difficult. But I think the silver lining for all of us is a, 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 a an important thing to focus on because it there has to be a reason why this is happening and it's not always all bad. It usually is sort of a reset. And for you, it's an opportunity. You, you know, you built your raised beds, you're spending more time at home um, during a time that you wouldn't normally be at home and you got to enjoy the weather, which is not usual, as you said. So other than that, you wouldn't have noticed these things. No, um, no, no. I, I years ago went through a very, very difficult time and, uh, I listened to Eckhart Tolle a lot. And yes. at that time, he, he talked about um, when really difficult things happen in life, that largely we have two choices. One is that we grow and learn from the difficult uh, situation that we're in. Or option two is that we become uh, entrenched and bitter. And I remember at that time, which is about 10 years ago, thinking, well, I'm I'm not going to choose option two. Yeah. don't really know how I'm going to grow out of this, but I'm determined not to become bitter and entrenched. And when this pandemic kicked in and, and the realization set in that this was long term and and very, very serious, uh, we made the same decision. And it doesn't mean that you don't feel the enormous fear and get overwhelmed with the enormity of it sure. and all the death and all the sickness and all of that, but that you can continually come back to the much broader and larger thinking um, and, and we do this by listening to lots of spiritual teachers so that we can 
reprogram our brains, essentially, that everything is okay. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. We're, we're perfectly fine right now. If I go down six months or a year or two years down the line and all the what ifs, then you go to hell. So yeah. it's, it's a good lesson in just literally keeping everything day by day. So we're living this one day at a time. Yeah. And today was, an, was a nice day. Wonderful. I, I really appreciate you going there right away because it's definitely the field I'm most interested in. Um, I've had my share of challenges and, and obstacles along the way. And getting through them couldn't have been possible without that attitude, without that desire of learning what was the lesson and making the change. Otherwise, you're not going anywhere. So before I go any further with other questions, I do want to deep deepen the conversation in this a little more. And my question to you is, is this something that you feel like you've gained as you've gotten older with experiences? Or have you always been inclined to think this way? No. Touch, uh, what did they say? Um, pain is the touchstone of all spiritual growth. So I'm only this way because I've suffered, uh, as, as everybody does to a certain extent. And I guess some people get more pain and suffering than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do, you have, as I said, you, you, you either grow or become more bitter. So I've had plenty of opportunity for growth in my life. Um, would anyone seek any form of spiritual path if they were perfectly happy and content and their life was running smoothly? No, they just get up every day, have coffee, go to work, come home in the evening, watch a couple of soap operas on the television, walk and go to bed. And I know people that do that. You know, they literally put their head on the pillow every night and go to sleep. Yeah. And, you know, what goes through their head? Nothing, because their life has been reasonably calm all the way through. And, you know, maybe they're at a different level of enlightenment than the rest sure. of us or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, with that journey comes a lot of pain, but also a lot of joy. You know, you don't get to experience the full spectrum of what life has to offer without living outside of your comfort zone. Absolutely. And that entails, you know, going through painful situations rather than running from them. And it, it involves, you know, what I did, which was give up a permanent pensionable job and go and play music for a living, mm-hmm. which was terrifying. Sure. And still is sometimes. And funnily enough, like doing that and kind of going, <laughs> what if the worst happened and I couldn't make a living from it? And here I am right now, like as my wife likes to call me her currently unemployed husband, <laughs> <laughs> a musician who can't go and play a gig, yeah. you know, and it's fine. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely fine. It is absolutely fine. And the other thing that I, I this I do know about you is that your sense of humor also carries you. Um, yeah, I've seen you on stage. I've had, you know, the opportunity to chat with you even behind you know, the scenes are off stage and your sense of humor is, I think, what has got my attention where I'm like, there's there's something here that I know I can, you know, learn from and, and explore a little more through storytelling and through conversation. But the sense of humor, is that something that also you gained or do you just come from a funny family? I don't know if I particularly come from a funny family. I was definitely the clown in the family, that's okay. for sure. Um, it's definitely an Irish thing and it's a coping mechanism as much as anything else. And sure. the Irish are famous for gallows humour. Plenty of it going around at the moment. Um, yeah, humour has always been a great defence mechanism for me. Yeah. Um, I haven't really thought about that an awful lot. But, well, you know, we do like to laugh. Irish people love jokes and we love them. I, I particularly like 
messing, as we call it. Yeah. Um, I'm a terrible man for stirring the pot. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I, but Irish humour is very, uh, it's 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 subtle, it's clean, it's organized and it's slightly self de- self-deprecating, which I think is so appealing to Americans because it's so not like American humor. And so when uh, maybe to some extent I relate to it a little more as half Italian and just seeing there's a little bit of a flavor that is more European in nature and how that humor comes across. And so um, I wonder when you are, you know, doing your, you know, little shtick, if you will, when you're on stage or whenever you're c- conversing, do you notice a reaction more when you're in the United States versus when you're back home? Sure, you could go way further back home. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and like we, we, you, you, you do need to watch your P's and Q's in the U.S. to a certain extent, yeah, and I mean, everybody knows this. Um, so, but I, I'm, I mean, I don't know if it's part of being a banjo player, but there's a rebellious spirit in most banjo players that I know. Mm. And it's always trying to see how far can I push this envelope before I start to get in trouble. So there have been plenty of times on stage where I'll say something that's, you know, slightly risque (laughs) in maybe in a political (laughs) sense. And there'll be just dagger looks from the other side of the stage. Depending on where you are in the US, you'll get a great response. And other times you'll get a slight inhalation of breath. Yeah, (laughs) or a pearl clutching moment, you know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that, funnily enough, that stuff excites me. Yeah. That I get a buzz off that. Sure. Uh, for right or for wrong. My, my wife will hang her head sometimes. She goes, God, there he goes again. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's part of your role is to create that kind of discomfort in the people that are around you. Otherwise, you're not keeping it interesting. So tell sure. me a little bit about your upbringing. Um, where did you grow up? Um, when did music show up in your life? Have you always been in a musical environment? Does your family come from a historically musical, traditional family? Tell me a little bit about sure. that. Sure. So I'm the second of four children. Uh, we grew up in rural Ireland, uh, in County Galway, um, not in a musical community at all. Um, my Neither of my parents played music. Um, largely, I think, because of opportunity more than mm-hmm. anything else, because they both grew up in farming backgrounds, particularly my dad, who probably had the most drive and the most interest in us playing music. Mm-hmm. But he grew up in quite a, um, impoverished is the wrong word, but, you know, there wasn't an awful lot of opportunity, mm-hmm. a, a very traditional, <clears throat> excuse me, Irish uh family in that the oldest son, which was him, was sent to be a priest the oldest sister was sent to be a nun, wow. who is a nun. And then the, what, what, there was another son got the farm. And my dad decided he didn't want to be a priest. So he went and became a teacher instead, which is the next best thing uh, to being a priest. So the opportunity for music wasn't there. But he had a very, very strong interest in us playing Irish music particularly. So uh, my older brother went for piano lessons when he was six. I tagged along because it was literally just down the road from where we lived. Uh, then I started to go. And when we went to primary level school at the age of five, there was a teacher who just happened to be very interested in Irish music as well. So every single child that came in on their very first day of school was handed a tin whistle. Hmm. and and was taught by her all the way through the year with great emphasis on it, how to play tin whistle. And so that school had a big interest in Irish music. And so the kids that went along learned Irish music all the way up. And they used to bring in really good teachers from outside to come in and teach music. 
Um, now, to put that in context, when we, we were like the first generation that really started to play Irish music to any significant level in the parish, um, my older brother w- was leading the charge in that way, and he's now a lecturer in Irish music. He has two masters and a PhD, wow. so he's the academic, Amazing. very much so. Uh, and the school that we went to became one of the biggest music Irish music schools in in the country and produced fantastic musicians and in terms of competition and stuff like that were renowned around the country. And then that old guard of teachers retired and the new teachers that came in had no interest in Irish music. And so now there is nothing. Oh no. And so it is, there's, there's still a little bit of interest, but in terms of the numbers and the skill level and just the general interest in it. So it really comes down to one or two people who drive, drive these things on. You know, um, and as I said, we were the first generation to play. There were no musicians that we knew of, like in the community. So it wasn't like, oh, we grew up now, and there was Jackie, this fella down the road played the fiddle, and this fella played the accordion. There was none of that. Um, I took up banjo at the age of eight as a teacher came into the school. My mum was on maternity leave uh, with my sister, and she came in and she says, "Who wants to play the banjo?" And I stuck up my hand. Thank God she didn't say bagpipes. And, uh, <laughs> When I went home, uh, my mom was would look after her baby while she was teaching in the school. I went home and there was a banjo in the house with a little wow. sheet of paper on how to get started, and that how was it. Exciting. Took to it like a fish to water. Yeah, I loved it. That's amazing. so. Did you stop playing piano then at that point? No, I did the uh, middle class Irish nineteen eighties thing, which was that you had to do your piano lessons and all your grades. I hated it because of the strictures. I hated the rules. Sure. I hated scales. Uh, I hated the fact that the composer was dictating how fast or slow I should play this piece of music. Right. I couldn't understand why I had to pay attention to the words that were written on the page that used to drive me mad. But this is part of that kind of daft, rebellious, uh, clueless kind of yeah. was person it, that I was at that stage. Was it classical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Classical piano. I did classical violin for a while. Um, my older brother got a scholarship to a very prestigious boarding school to study classical music. Oh, and because wow. he went, uh, they sent me as well two years later. Oh. So I did pipe organ for a while too. Do you ever I hated play? every... Now? No, I hated every second of it. Oh. So I, I did like all my grades in piano. I got extinctions all the way through. And as soon as I was finished the last grade, I didn't play it for 20 years. Because I hated it so much. Wow. But I love the banjo. Yeah. You could give me a banjo, I'd play it day and night. Day that's, and night. That, that's kind of amazing because if you didn't have the exposure in your family, I mean, the banjo is such a, it's such a traditional instrument that usually you would say it was passed down from, you know, grandpa or great uncle or someone. And yet for you, it just showed up kind of instinctively, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I do know that your brother Fergal is also your bandmate, and he plays the fiddle. Now, when did he, and he's your younger brother, so when did he come along and join kind of the musical journey? Because you only talked about you and your older brother. Yeah. So my sister, we all go in in steps of three years. Okay. My sister is three years younger than me, so she's a music therapist and a fantastic concertina player, has won loads of competitions and all the rest of it, and she teaches um, and teaches a whole broad range of different instruments as well, piano and fiddle and all this kind of stuff. Wow. And then Fertile, he was the last in and he was the most naturally gifted, I guess, or else he was the one that got the most exposure to all of the music that was going on. Um, and probably being the last child as well, there's like less 
focus on the last kid. You're kind of just left <laughs> up to your own devices. So he was like playing everything. Um, True. Look at me. Look at me. Yeah. So he was, I guess he was three or four when he started playing on the bar on. Yeah, wow. And he was phenomenal from the start. Yeah. You know? Well, he, the advantage, um, he his story is told a little differently from yours because yours is you and your brother were the ones who started the music in the family because your parents didn't have that opportunity. But Fergal grew up in a home that was very musical because all his siblings <laughs> were already into music. And so the story is probably told a little differently from his perspective uh, due to the exposure that he had, which is, it's it's really, really cool. Um, so you you said that the banjo was, you know, the instrument that called you. Why? What, like, how did that happen? Uh, there's just the sound of it. Okay. And and I couldn't explain any more than that. I don't even know where I had heard it. But the sound of the banjo, I was like, I just loved it. Um, I, I don't know. I can theorize on it, but it, I don't think it came down to anything more than the sound. But yeah. as soon as I started to play it, I never had to be asked to practice. And that's the key component when I, I used to teach an awful lot of kids coming for lessons all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you, you would teach children who loved the banjo. They loved playing and they would come in, they'd run in the door week after week. And then there was kids who were sent mm-hmm. to banjo classes because it was the thing to do. And they would be, they would have much preferred to be playing sport. And I would tell their parents Mm -hmm. and they would still insist that they send them for, for lessons. And I think that's a very key thing is that, you know, the hope is that you will eventually find the thing that you love. If you find it early enough, maybe you'll become extremely proficient, but you can also find it later in life and still become really proficient on it. So there's hope for me in the banjo. Well, if you love the banjo, there's absolutely. <laughs> I do love hope, the banjo. Yeah. Oh yeah. Rhiannon, Rhiannon Giddens, <clears throat> I had a chat to her a couple of years ago at Romp. She didn't take up the banjo until she was twenty-one. Oh wow! Never set. And Abigail Washburn is 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 another person that never played a note until her twenties. She was seriously working on a strip mall or something like and that. She's, and she's oh, I just I yeah, could stare but, at her for hours and hours. Exactly. Um, you did allude to the fact that you teach or I don't know if you teach as much now, now that you tour so much, but um, you did develop your own method in teaching the banjo and perhaps even playing the banjo. I've read Mm. so many comments on your banjo playing um, and they were nothing but affirmations to what I had already seen and witnessed because I got to see you live several times. And there is something about how you play the banjo that is, uh, let me describe it the way I see it. Okay. You'll get a kick out of this. I look at you play the banjo and what your hands are doing, what your fingers are doing and what's coming out of the banjo is so not a reflection of what the rest of you is doing. It's almost like you're in a trance, but it's like this like joyful trance. It's like there's it's some of them rock out and you can just tell they're putting so much energy. You put almost no energy whatsoever in your body when you're playing it. And yet what's coming out is insane. How did that happen? I mean... Clearly you're gifted, yeah. but also tell me about your process. Uh, okay, so this is quite an involved story and there's, there's a number of questions in there actually. One is about the teaching method sure. uh, and the other is about the efficiency of motion, if you will. Um, and they're they're not unlinked. Uh, so to, to talk first about how I ended up um, playing but barely moving as Dave says, the ice man on banjo who doesn't move. <laughs> so 20 years ago, 
I developed really bad uh, tendonitis in my left elbow. And with that came uh, headaches, uh, pains in my face. When, and this was when I was playing. So I would get really, really, like really bad headaches. And then my left arm got so sore that I had largely stopped playing for about a year. Whoa. So I did all of the things that you do with that, you know, you panic and then go and get loads of physiotherapy and get loads of acupuncture and you get this, that and the other. And um. It, within that entire process, I ended up going to see, uh, getting some energy treatment done. Similar to, um, what do you call it? Oh, God, I can't even remember what it's called now. Craniosacral um, therapy? A little bit like that. But it was, the, it was a lady in Galway. She was kind of half cracked. But <laughs> she. <laughs> half cracked. I love that expression. Um, a little bit half cracked. But I was going to her. And she was doing all this energy work on me. And uh, she happened to see me playing on the television one of the evenings after working with me. And she rang me up afterwards and she goes, I know what your problem is. She said, you're not breathing when you're playing. And I was like, what are you talking about? I always breathe when I'm playing. And she goes, no, you're not breathing. And I've just watched you on the television and you're holding your breath. Now, this had never occurred to me. And I was in enormous physical pain at the end of every time I played, like just... I was, my wife was like, why are you doing this to yourself? You're playing these sessions in pubs and you're coming home and you're in bits afterwards. So I went in that evening to play and I noticed that every time I played, I would tense up and I would stop breathing. And I was driving all of this tension into my arms and into my head and clenching my jaw. And, and it was an effort, the short, shortened versions of the story is it was in an effort to be good. I was trying to be such a great player mm-hmm. and I was trying to be perfect and, you know, a whole lot of uh, just stress issues from work and everything else. So I was taking all of this kind of pent up stress and tension and rage and all of that kind of stuff and bringing it into my playing. And when I realized what was happening, I was clenching my stomach and holding my breath. Wow. And I was almost passing out. Oh, my goodness. And I was kind of really deflated when I realized. So I went home and I took a break from sessions for a period of time. And I would sit in my room and I would just breathe. So I had to go to yoga class to learn how to breathe. And I went to yoga class and she said, release your tummy muscles. And I nearly threw up. I realized I hadn't released them for years. Oh my (laughs) goodness. I just been holding on to them the whole time. There's a lot of control there. I mean, it's almost like this, like, wow. Yeah. So I had to learn how to breathe first properly, belly breathing. And then I had to learn how to play music and breathe at the same time, because the muscle memory I had developed over many years of tense playing meant that I was just used to holding my breath. So when I tried to play Irish music, I immediately went back to what I knew, which was breath hold. So I needed to find something else. Mm-hmm. And this is where I got into playing old time music, because on a banjo, when you go and play reels and jigs, it's very involved and it's very, you can't really throw your mind out of it. So I would just play old time kind of claw hammer rhythms on the banjo that I had no emotional attachment to. It was very relaxing music to play. It was quite easy in one sense. And I would sit in my room for hours on end and I would just strum away and play these old time rhythms and I would breathe and I would do belly breathing and actively push my stomach in and out against the back of the banjo. And over a period of time, I trained myself to breathe and play at the same time. Now, the unexpected benefit of that was that my ability to play 
uh, increased exponentially. And I was suddenly able to do things that I had never done before. And I was playing with a band at the time where we we played seated. And because I was the young member of the band, I wasn't allowed to talk. So I would just perfectly fine by me. So I would get on stage, I would close my eyes and I would keep them closed for 45 minutes and I would just breathe. And I knew all of the tunes inside out. So the next set of tunes come along and I would forget about the notes and I would just breathe and I breathe in and breathe out and I would bring everything, all my attention would go into the breathing because I knew the tunes that played them a million times. And what happened over a period of time with that was that I got into that, that flow state. And I remember it distinctly because it was in Birmingham, Alabama, and it was in a concert hall that was over a piano shop. It was beautiful. Wow. And we were playing the Bluebell Polka. And, you know, the books talk about these moments and you'll always remember them. Playing the Bluebell Polka. And I looked, I opened my eyes and I looked down at my hands and I was like, who is doing this magic? And the piano player who was beside me looked over and he was like, wow. Wow. And it was just magic happening. Now, the really important point is the following night, I was like, can't wait for the Bluebell Polka because I'm going to do all of that really cool stuff again. Bluebell Polka comes along and it's a car crash. No. Because I stopped breathing. No. Yeah. I took my focus off. Because you anticipated it. Well, I tried to be good. You thought about it too much. Yeah. So out of that entire process, A, came the this Zen banjo playing. Now, when I started playing Wii Banjo 3, we started playing standing up. So a lot of that went out the window and I had to reclaim it over years. Mm. But a lot of that is comes down to like really great flexibility, uh, uh, re- removal of tension as much as I possibly can. And, and as much breathing and as much inward looking, it's largely why I wear sunglasses on stage because it just removes one of the factors of performance off the table for me, which is eye contact with the audience. And you look so, so I cool. Wear sunglasses. Exactly. Well, that's yeah. a bit not a benefit. Yeah. It's just a side benefit. <laughs> it is. But it means that I can continue to bring that level of the inward journey uh, to the banjo playing. And that's where an awful lot of that flexibility and looseness comes from and out of all of that process also came my teaching technique Mm. because while I was in this process of learning to breathe and uh, you know learning to relax everything I went to Germany for a week uh, teaching and I got there and I only had one student for the whole week and he was German and he would pick apart pardon the pun every single note that I played why did you do a downstroke on this note and I had no idea it was just this is the way I play so by the end of the week, he had analyzed my playing to such a degree that I had formed a teaching technique by the end of the week. And that you then weren't I applied even that aware to, of? Well, I had never formalized it because I had never analyzed my own playing. Wow. I had just played. And so then I started to teach people from scratch with this process that he had essentially um formulated or we had for I, I had formulated by analyzing my own playing and what i noticed is that when somebody came to me with a problem for instance i was able to say ah well now i know what you're doing wrong and if you do this differently you can alleviate that problem and it would work wow and you know five years later decided i would put it into a book and yeah. you know put a ped- pedagogy that's the right pronunciation yeah. on banjo playing which had never happened before so that yeah, and, and, was, and that book is now the book and the method are considered the top in Ireland in banjo playing and banjo teaching. And you ended up also putting out a second volume of that same mm-hmm. um, 
method. Yeah, and, the second the second volume, yeah, the second one nearly killed me because that was a really hard write. The first one was because it was those foundational methods was it flowed out of me and it was easy to put it on, onto the paper. The second one was more about uh, because one of the things that banjo suffers from is a very metronomic machine gun style uh, um, uh, rhythm because of the nature of the instrument. It doesn't have a natural resonance and it also doesn't have any breath, mm. funnily enough, mm. because you can just pick up and down forever. It's a bit like a baron, you know, so mm. you have to generate the breath and you have to do it using various methods like chords and ornamentation. But it's also a mind game. You have to think about where is the breath coming in, in, in every tune. So book two was about that, but that's much harder to write because it's not simple. Mm-hmm. It's more, much more nuanced. So, uh, but I think I got, I got a fair bit of it down. Well, the banjo is, is a confusing instrument in that it's both percussive and a string instrument. So it's, it does a little bit of both. You're essentially drumming strings on it because it, it mm-hmm. produces that kind of vibe. Um, have you, with your love of banjo, have you felt any kind of curiosity to explore the history of the banjo? Because I think all of us now nowadays know and recognize that a big part of the history of the instrument comes from Africa, or at least a big chunk of it does. Have you been able to do a little more in-depth research into the history of the, or the genetics of this instrument that you love so much? Sure. I mean, what I know is what Mick Maloney knows, Professor Mick Maloney, and what he has written about, which is the African connection and then you know, Irish workers meeting uh, African slaves and the fiddle and the banjo meeting up and then the minstrel music and traveling the world with the minstrels and the Irish influence, 80% of all the minstrels were Irish. When I met Rhiannon Giddens two years ago and we were chatting backstage at Romp and I wanted to do some music together that kind of related to the suffering that the Irish have gone through with 850 years of repression by a a foreign country, which generated an awful lot of our culture. And then you have this African music, which came to America through slavery, which Mm -hmm. obviously was, you know, hugely torturous. But yet both of those musics have great vibrancy and they have great joy. And they're not massively sad, even though they, they do have obviously sad songs. I've been to Eastern Europe where I've been to folk nights in former uh, Russian states and their folk music is only sad. Mm. There is no joyful music. It's just sad. It's dirge after dirge after dirge and it's really depressing. And I was curious as to why the Irish and the African music was so upbeat despite all of this pain. Uh, We did talk about that briefly. And then very interestingly, she talked about how the history of the banjo is the white history of the banjo. You know, it's a history that has been whitened. Wow. And I, had, of course, never considered this before. And the only point that I guess that she was making was that all of the black musicians that did influence minstrelry and ragtime and so on and so forth have been forgotten about. Wow. And they're, they're not known about to the same extent. Like there's a, there's a, uh, it's a great argument whether it's a myth or it's reality that an Irish musician put the fifth string on the banjo. And, you know, if you listen to the historians that have written about the banjo up to now, they talk, I, I think it's Emmett Sweeney. He was one of the Irish minstrels that he put the fifth string on the banjo and that's how it became a five string instrument. And now they have found five string 
instruments in Africa that predate all of this. Oh, wow. So it's just kind of curious about, you know, history is written by the winners or sure. however you want to kind of phrase that. But that was a sort of an interesting yeah. aspect of it. The thing that always interested me about the banjo was that notion that the music that was played on it was joyful despite the pain and suffering. And that's the part of the history that interests me the most. Yeah, I, I love that you said that because it's it takes us back to the whole point in history. So as an immigrant myself here in the United States, you know, I've I've been very interested and curious to know more about the history of this country because it is founded so much on a blend of cultures, some, you know, with such harsh and brutal realities and backgrounds and others, you know, with a perhaps a more um um, a stronger intention of making a better life for themselves and for the country that they're coming to. But the Irish story was one that really shocked me. And as a person who is Irish and in Ireland, you know, you have not done the journey of the Irish immigrant, and perhaps you have family that have immigrated to the United States and you have, I don't know if you do, but I mean, most Irish people have some connection with, you know, fellow family members that have immigrated mostly to the United States, I was not aware at how completely brutal, uh, you know, the Irish immigrants were treated here. And I knew a lot about the Italian immigrants. And part of that, I know it's also we go back to, you know, the visuals and, you know, Italians being darker and, you know, Southern European and all of that, there was this kind of, you know, rejection of them. But with the Irish, I was really surprised to see at how ill treated they were as immigrants. Um and, you know, this is just kind of taking us in a different direction. But I'm curious for you as an Irish person that comes to the United States very often and performs here and engages with probably a lot of Irish identifying Americans. Let, let's go there. Tell me what you think as an Irish person. How do you kind of reconcile that part of history? Hmm. Uh, we're, we're, we're not a family that has a strong connection to immigration. Okay. Uh, my my aunt did immigrate to the US in the 70s. I married a man from uh, Iran and they wow. had kids. So I have American Iranian cousins that live uh, in Oregon and in California. And they're the gorgeous people. Um, what I would find is that Irish people all over the world are phenomenally proud of being Irish. Mm -hmm. Even if they're five and six and seven generations Irish. There are people that aren't Irish at all that identify with Irish mm -hmm. culture and that fall in love with Irish culture. And I think that's extremely curious. As an Irish musician playing folk music all around the world, knowing how privileged a position we are in, because that particular niche of folk music is above any other folk music that exists. There is no folk music that is supported to the same extent as Irish music worldwide. Look at in, you only need to look at Riverdance, mm -hmm. Celtic Woman and all of the Irish festivals in the US and all around the world. There, there is nothing to compare to it. I don't know why that is. I think a huge part of it is just the amount of immigration that happened from Ireland mm -hmm. because of the Great Famine and because of all the repression that was happening in Ireland. And then Irish people have an incredible ability to survive and to yeah. adapt and an incredible ability, as we as we talked about earlier, to maintain a level of humor in the face of great suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. people are attracted to that. They're attracted to the openness. They're attracted to the warmth. I mean, you know, Ireland of the Thousand Welcomes 
is not just something that the tourist board made up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 I, I think that's exactly it. And, you know, tying it back to the music from Africa is that even with all that pain and suffering, the reflection in the music and in the humor is that of joy. It's of resilience. It's of survival. And it really is, you know, it goes back to the first part of this interview when we started talking about, you know, keeping an optimistic mind and using Eckhart Tolle's message of you have two choices and, you know, one and there's the alternative. And uh, that is a strong aspect in most of those cultures that have survived so many hardships. And the Irish have become famous for it. You know, uh, St. Patrick's Day is a celebration that many countries around the world, you know, celebrate just because it's such a joyous opportunity to mm -hmm. just go off and play music. And and for me, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated with Irish music. I have no personal genetic Irish connections, but I remember being a teenager, hearing Riverdance for the first time, seeing the dance, seeing the moves, the feet. And I was a dancer and hearing the music and just feeling like I was transported, you know, in centuries of past. And I don't know what that is, but there's, there, I think there's an ancestral um, vibrancy and kind of a, a a calling, I think, for all of us, because I think to some extent we are all one. And I think we all have that wave that tugs at us when we hear something that is so profoundly historic. Yeah. And people want to belong as well. And that's one of the things I've noticed about the US. And I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but as a, as a relatively young nation yeah. in terms of the history of the world, um, that seeking to belong and then America being such a boiling pot of different cultures and different nations. Um, sure. The people are attracted to the Chinese because it's an ancient culture. Yeah. So they love the, the mysticism of the East. They're attracted to Ireland because, you know, castles and music that goes back generations and generations and generations. Yeah. And it's something that you can find an identity with and then feel that you have a connection and a root with. Um, and it's one of the things I've always found curious, and it'll it'll obviously pass in time with with a lot of with a lot of Americans that we meet. That it's sort of like I'm in this massive experiment here of a bunch of different nations all together, yeah. <laughs> and I can't really identify with anything here currently. But the Irish thing now that's really cool. They're all very friendly. They're great crack, <laughs> and it's, it's really ancient. So I'm going to hang out with those guys because they seem to be having a really good time, and they know where they're from, and they know what they're at. Um, we don't always largely know that either, but and, and maybe I'm completely off the mark with that. That's no, something I, I, always, I, I agree with you and... completely. I That's been my experience as well. And I've been in the United States 20 years and I visited before moving here permanently 20 years ago. But I, I think I think that is absolutely true. We all yearn for a sense of belonging. And when we don't find our own, we try to, you know, belong to another group that that feels as welcoming and as open. Well, you yeah. we, we have. You... Go ahead. Yeah, if you ask an Irish person where they're from, they'll tell you where they were born every time, no matter where they're living. And I found if you ask uh, uh, an American, where are you from? Chicago. Where were you born? <laughs> oh, Texas. <laughs> but where are you from? Chicago. Ask an Irish uh, person that's living in Australia. Where are you from? Mayo. <laughs> that's so interesting. You know? Wow, that, that's yeah. fascinating. So I'm half Middle Eastern as well. And I noticed that in both the Middle Eastern and Italian culture, which are, by the way, very similar, um, there is that sense of when when asked, where are you from? You say where your family is from. doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter where you're growing up, but where your family's name comes from is where you consider yourself 
where you come okay. from. So I find that very interesting how every culture has its own sense of identity, um, both as an individual and as a collective. Um, well, we've talked a lot about your American journeys and experience and interaction. And part of that is because you tour with your wonderful band, We Banjo 3. We have to talk about We Banjo 3. Um, I will start by saying that Steve Martin, the wonderful comedian and um, banjo player, has probably uh, quoted, or I, I'm going to quote him as probably my favorite quote about We Banjo 3, where he said, We Banjo 3 are making waves here in America. They are playing the banjo in a style that I didn't even know could be played like that. So that's not only a nod at We Banjo 3, but it's a serious you know, tip of the hat to you because you are the banjo sound of We Banjo 3. And there are not three banjos in We Banjo 3. You'll have to explain that to us. <laughs> so how did when you when you heard that from someone like Steve Martin, who, by the way, is a, is a good banjo player. I don't think that he's the best banjo player. He's a good banjo player, but he's someone that certainly appreciates. And um, that coming from him is not so much a compliment as it coming from the best banjo player in the world, but it's coming from someone that certainly has taken the banjo very seriously. Uh, how did that feel like when you when you saw that mm. or when you heard that? And then well, tell me about We Banjo 3. The, yeah, I was in the car with my wife and my son and we were driving to Kinvara I believe for I don't even know we were going walking I think in the Burren and we were listening to Irish radio and he was on and we were just you know driving through the countryside and then we we, we just heard him and for, we both anticipated that he was going to say something about We Banjo 3 and I nearly crashed the car because <laughs> so, it was so exciting because the show that he's on is one of the really huge uh, radio shows on, on national radio in Ireland. And then my phone just lit up with people going, oh my God, did you hear what Steve Martin said on the radio about you? So <laughs> it was wonderful. Yeah, We Banjo 3 is, is as convoluted a story as all Irish stories are. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, when I was doing all of that breath work and learning how to breathe, and that's when I became interested in, in old time rhythms. And then I wanted to explore that a little bit more. Uh, and I I was teaching Martin and David. They they would basically come to the house and we would play tunes. I think teaching is probably an overstatement at this stage. And Martin uh, and David are brothers and they are the other two yeah. brothers in We Banjo 3. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. had gone, they had actually been taught by a guy that I taught, if that makes any sense. Whoa. So they're like banjo. You're that old, Enda. I'm ancient. <laughs> I'm just very well preserved. Yeah, you are. Um, so, the, yeah. So I knew they were great musicians and I want to, I just wanted to play with other banjo players. And I just, it was just a mad idea. So they came up to the house one evening and we just started to play kind of old timey style tunes on the banjos. And we were just sitting around my kitchen table and we just all started smiling and we're like, this is really cool. Like it's super. And, and that was it. We, we did that a few more times. Uh, Martin says, you know, Dave sings. And Dave at this stage was like 16 and skinny and shy. Oh, oh. He wouldn't know it now. And partly yeah. terrified of me as well, I think, ultimately. Oh. And I said, no way. And Martin goes, yeah, yeah, he's a great singer. So he started singing. And I was like, wow. Yeah. And we just said, let's do a gig. So I don't know how we came up with the name We Banjo 3. Because, well, there was three of us and there was three banjos. And you were but our very first playing the banjo. Yeah, yeah. But our very first gig, our first ever gig was at Galway Arts Festival in 2009. And there was four of us. There was four banjos. 
No way. Whoa, yeah. really? Yeah, because I had done a, a crazy project called Banjaxed with like 10 banjo players all playing at the same time, oh which was utterly bonkers. <laughs> and one of the guys in the band uh, was a five-string banjo player from England. And he was the only five-string banjo player I knew in Europe. So when we got this gig, I said, Leon, do you want to come over and just be in the, be in the gig? Like, and so our first gig actually had four members. So that's how bonkers uh, We Banjo 3 is. But it wow. sold out and it sold out around the corner, sold out. Uh, it was part of Galway Arts Festival. What we realized is that people just saw banjo and went, that sounds like fun. And it was rammed. And uh, then Martin uh, applied for a bursary competition to the Arts Council in, in, in Ireland. Um, and we won it. And that meant that we were in a three-year cycle where we did tours of the art centres in Ireland and we produced a record. And wow. so we did all of that and they sold out. We sold out every single show. It just got bigger and bigger. They ran an extra set of gigs for us, sold out all of that. And coming toward the end of that cycle, I uh, was in the US on tour and I met Ed Ward from Milwaukee Irish Festival at a house concert in rural Wisconsin. And I said, Ed, I have a new band. Uh, it's got three banjos in it. I know it sounds mental, but it'll be amazing. <laughs> and if you give us a chance at Milwaukee, we'll blow you off the stage. And of course, I was kind of spoofing and, you know, I did the elevator pitch, you know, yeah, really sure. well. And he rang me up two weeks later and said, uh, yeah, we'll have you. This was like October. And I went into a complete state of panic because I knew how big Milwaukee was. And I don't think I'd slept between then and the following August. Oh, my goodness. Because I was like, oh, my God, this, this, is, this is huge, this is, you know. It is. And we knew, we knew going over that three banjos just wouldn't cut it. I knew because I'd been to I'd been to the festival in two thousand and four, I think, mm -hmm. or two thousand and three, and um, so we asked Fergal if he'd come for the weekend, uh, oh. just to, to just to kind of prop us up with a bit of fiddle. <laughs> now, was Fergal already in a project on his own? Was he doing his yeah, own? Yeah, he was playing. He, he was playing in pubs in Clifton and oh, he was wow. playing like 14 gigs a week and he was making loads of money. He was having a great time. He didn't want to come. He was like, this is the middle of the tourist season. I'm going oh, to lose no. a load of money coming. Oh, and I was no. like, please, 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 <laughs> you've got to come. And really reluctantly, uh, and, and he, he, decided, he, he came. And I mean, none of us had any idea and it blew up that weekend. Wow. Our last gig, I mean, it's almost you know, myth this stage was in the small tent at Milwaukee. Thunderstorm came in in the middle of the gig. Tent fits about 150 people. And there was like, I don't know how many thousand people were trying to get into the tent. And then we just dragged them all in and put them up on the stage and they were sitting on the speakers. And, you oh, know, that's wild. It was just this, and, and everybody that was there remembers it and people that weren't there think they were there. And, you know, it was just <laughs> one of those amazing moments that happened. And wow. yeah. Wow. And then, you know, we, we went out, that was 2012. We went out on tour in 2013. I booked everything. I nearly had a nervous breakdown. We did a seven week tour. It was insane. And we, oh man, the driving was just nuts. Like, and this is a U.S. Um, tour? U.S. tour, US yeah. U.S. tour. Yeah. So did Fergal, took, did Fergal, once he, you had that amazing, insane Milwaukee festival experience, was he like, Oh, maybe I'll stick around for a little while longer. Yeah, yeah. He was like, <laughs> let's see what happens after this. And he, um, he was in the band then after that. Yeah. You know, he didn't want to be in it at all. I bet. Uh, first. And he was like, this is weird. Two sets of brothers. No, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> and um, it's just, it just grew. It grew exponentially. We took on an agent in the US then a few years later. And that 
it was a big game changer. It was, you know, got proper routing in and so, you know, proper strategic planning of where the band was going. And both probably myself and Martin particularly, uh, everything on the back foot, we were suddenly having having to learn how to run a business. Mm-hmm. You know, we just did this for fun and suddenly it was a business and suddenly it was getting really big. We had to learn accounting skills, we had to learn marketing, you know, social media, all of this. We were running to catch up the whole time. Yeah. Um, but it was exciting as well. I mean, I found a great love for marketing that I didn't know that I had. Both of us found a huge business acumen that we didn't know we had. We yeah. discovered we're both entrepreneurs. We had no clue about that. He was doing a... Martin was doing a master's in engineering. Like oh, wow. he couldn't get further. I was working for the health department. Neither of us could have been further from what we do now. Wow. And um, yeah, we, we just learned so much so fast. But we had an, an incredible drive and huge curiosity and, you know, huge inspiration constantly yeah. to make it better and make it bigger. Yeah, I, I think what's the most exciting thing about We Banjo 3 is that you definitely have hit the big time, as they say here, and you you... You're doing it in a way that's more of a reflection of, you know, pop and rock music, but you have stayed true to the traditional spirit of it because you're extremely approachable. You take time to be with your fans. You still have a very humble presence as a band, as band members, as musicians. You continue to honor the purpose in which you are doing this, which is not only music, but also connecting with people. And we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, some of the other projects that you're involved in um, that music helps you get there. But you're, you're kind of huge when you are on stage. It's, it's so exhilarating. I mean, I go to so many traditional music concerts and what I love about them is that they, they don't have that, you know, disconnecting, feeling you know where the audience are here and the performers there like most rock concerts with you guys it's a party everyone is there everyone is part of this crazy party you are 100% engaged with your audience every single person that's there on on a seat or standing and I think that's what has been the strongest appeal of We Banjo 3 for all because I look at when I go to your shows I see there's all ages in there everyone's on their feet there's kids, there's teenagers, there's boys, there's girls, there's all identities, there's, you know, cross-cultural interest. And I think that's probably uh, thanks to what you said is your your desire to, you know, make this about the music and also this discovery of entrepreneurship. And yeah, yeah we learned the first, our first weekend in Milwaukee, we learned something huge, which was that uh, audiences want to be entertained. And we always knew that, but that's not necessarily a natural part of Irish music because Irish music can be very much performed, uh, but done either with eyes closed or looking at the ground. And the the entertainment or that performance factor of it is not intrinsic to Irish music at all. Very true. So we, ha- we, we kind of went and we watched these bands that, you know, arguably musically mightn't be the best in the world, but how come they had 10,000 people enthralled for an, a 90 minute show? And we're like, what are these guys doing? And we found they're really entertaining the crowd. Mm-hmm. So we stole all of their ideas, essentially. Uh, <laughs> we, we, no, I'm joking. We we developed entertainment and we added it to the music that we were doing. And by, by putting the two together, yeah. we were able to maintain our musical um abilities we, we didn't have to sell out in any fashion in terms of what we were playing 
Yeah. Uh, but that we could also bring in this entertainment factor. And that's where, for me, it was like such a huge step up because suddenly I was playing standing up, which I'd never done before. Mm. But I understood it was a vital part, but I hated it. Like I absolutely, it was dizzy and everything. I couldn't play for, for about a year properly because I just, everything was in the wrong place. Wow. Uh, hands were all over the shop and, you know. Um, but I understood how important it was because yeah. audiences listen with their eyes. Mm-hmm. And the more that we developed that, just the, the more people were engaged with the show. Um, a couple of things as well. I was given a wonderful piece of advice many, many years ago by a fiddler who said, every time you go out on stage, he says, remember that there's somebody in the audience, and he said a little old lady, uh, who has saved up for a long time to afford the ticket to come to see you. Oh, wow. And if you play to her every night, you'll stay right-sized. Wow. And so I always remember that when I'm on stage and I know the lads do as well mm-hmm. is that there's never the assumption that I deserve to be there. It's wow. I walk out and I go, there's somebody here has really worked hard to get here Either they've traveled or they've saved up a long time to buy the ticket. If I play to them, then I, I, I maintain uh, yeah. my size and they, you don't get run away with the ego. And yeah, I mean, you see that happening with bands, you know, that's beautiful. Uh, the, yeah. And the other thing that I found as well is that just on an energetic level, I need to reserve about 20% of what I have for myself. Uh, the first couple of tours that we did, I gave everything, mm. literally everything, and would come off stage and I had nothing and I was depleted and the anxiety and all of the stuff that comes along with that and realized, no, I need to maintain 20% yeah. for me. But it keeps everything much more level then because you don't need to go on a mad ego rush on stage because you're trying to drive everything that you have out into the audience. So it becomes more symbiotic than it does uh, just a full-on transfer. Yeah, that's beautiful. And yeah, and understanding that it is symbiotic, that we need the audience every bit as much as they need us. And if they're close to us, if they're engaged, uh, then we have a way better experience on stage. Absolutely. Um, What you just now said about the 20% of taking care of yourself um, is a beautiful and excellent reminder of the importance of how interconnected we are because without taking care of yourself you can't take care of others you know that the the old metaphor of putting the mask on yourself before you put it on others and that is very very true um it's also true because you yourself and your band are very very invested in mental health um we banjo 3 has committed to giving back to support um awareness for mental health um, how have you decided that this was the cause that you all wanted to be involved in? And tell me a little bit about what it is that you all do, because I know that you do a lot. But highlight that for us. Yeah, yeah so it's it started kind of accidentally a number of years ago when we didn't have a new album. And we were kind of getting to that stage where we had done an album every year and then suddenly we didn't have anything to sell so we were like well we need to give the tour a title give it a theme Mm -hmm. and we're like what do we call it and uh, so Ferdle had mentioned something because he was living out in the wild west of Ireland at the time and he said you know during the summertime uh, it never really gets dark out there like even at three o'clock in the morning there's still a little bit of light in the sky and I thought why don't we base it tour around that concept that no matter how dark it gets there's always a little bit of light so we did a a tour called um light the western sky mm-hmm. and the, and we just started and and we gave money from 
each T-shirt that we sold, we got a special T-shirt made for the tour. And we said we would give the money to suicide prevention in Ireland. And it had started to become talked about in Ireland as well. And kind of celebrities were coming out and talking about their mental health. And it was the start of that. We, we didn't start it, but it was the start mm-hmm. of that, that opening up of a conversation around all of this stuff. So uh, we ran that for that summer and, and people really loved the idea. And then that was when Dave started talking about his own struggles. And, you know, he's fairly well documented at this stage that yeah. he has struggled with um, with anxiety and depression and and. Uh, so he would start to talk about that on stage. And there was a song that he had written called Don't Let Me Down, which was around mental health. And we just noticed that people connected with it. Yeah. Um, and then we, last year in 2019, we took the entire year and we gave a portion of all sales of all merchandise to Mental Health America. And this year we're working with Backline, which is an organization that gives mental health service access to musicians and to sound engineers and to the family of musicians wow. and stuff. It's very vital. I mean, there's been so many like high profile suicides in the music industry yeah. and many, many others, I am sure, you know, it's a, it's a very significant problem. Um, I think people look on stage and they see guys rocking out and having a great time and, you know, smashing drums and playing guitars and they go, wow, what an incredible lifestyle. But most musicians that I know uh, suffer to some extent or other because to become good enough to play professionally, you have to have something that's driving driving you to get that good. Yeah. For a lot of people, it's perfectionism, it's low self-esteem, it's a lack of self-belief or self-doubt that has driven them to become so great, but they they are still driven by those demons. And an awful lot of musicians I know are like that. People that you would never dream would have self-doubt issues. And they go, no, this is a huge, huge factor. And it's what drives me on all of the time to become better and to become greater. Um, And I think that's a conversation that probably hasn't even been had, you know, within the music industry uh, as widely as as what it could be. But there's there's just, there's, there's so much. And I mean, now with the worldwide pandemic, there will be a huge mental health crisis after this has passed because now the entire world is in a state of shock and there will be a kind of a post-traumatic uh, stress factor after this happens absolutely. after this passes you know yeah absolutely um, wow yeah that that um the fact that you brought up the you know the the vastness of mental health issues in the world by the way what you hear in the background is insane rain so can you hear it Nope. It's it's pouring. It's coming <laughs> down. It's hard. It's beautiful. Um, we've had beautiful sunny days, so this is a welcome. Um, but what what I was starting to say was how, and I'm not going to assume that you've got it all figured out, and here you are, you know, end up cracking jokes and all is well, because I'm sure that you do have your your moments and your days of of challenge and of uh, struggle. How would you say that you have maintained a sense of balance? that 20% of making sure you're preserving some for yourself. And also as a musician that really is working hard and not going down that path that many musicians have sadly gone down, how would you say that for yourself it's worked and what kind of advice would you give other musicians out there, both young and old and, you know, veterans and amateurs? Yeah. Uh, The number one thing for me was awareness was so understanding what was happening, what was, what was happening in my mind. Um, and I think what 
comes with that is getting to know myself and understanding that this is my makeup. I've always been this way. I've always been perfectionistic. Uh, I've always been a very harsh self-critic. Um, I've also I've always had self-doubt. And now I understand that I'm also very driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's hardwired into my personality. And I don't think if I went and lived on Meditation Mountain for 10 years that that would change. But what I have found is that I have learned a whole series of tools that helps me to temper my own personality so that I can live easier in the world. Some days I get it right. Some days I get it terribly wrong. And it's a bit like I'm a ship that doesn't have a rudder. And most days I'm pointing at the rocks. And so now I have a set of tools that steers me gradually away on a day-by-day basis and points me in the direction that I want to go. And, and, and there are many days when I get up and I'm just, all I see is rocks and we're heading there and I'm pressing the accelerator. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and then the good days are the days when I'm getting out of my own way and understanding all of the processes that are going on up here and then using all the tools that I've learned over the years to deal with them, everything from breathing to meditation to you name it. I mean, it's all, it's all very well written about and it's all there. It's, you know, but practicing it like everything else is the, uh, is the key. And at the moment I'm doing the Wim Hof breathing method and I'm only yeah. doing it because Ferdel said you should do this because it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. Uh, yeah. He, so he, uh, he, it's, it's just a huge, very energetic breathing it's only 10 minutes every morning mm-hmm. and it's like hyper oxygenating your body mm-hmm. and then long breath holes. Now he, he, the next process is to start getting into really cold showers and ice baths and all that. But I'm pretty sure I'm too much of a wuss for that right now. But <laughs> The breathing thing in the morning, 10 minutes, and it just, it changes my mindset. It changes my physiology. Yeah. And when I change my physiology, I change my mindset. I normally go to the gym five days a week when I'm at home. Mm-hmm. And by taking huge physical action, I change my mindset. Uh, everything is shut down now at the moment. So that's much more difficult because yeah. I don't get to go and just lift loads of weights. And by taking exertive um, action, I don't get to shift all of that junk that's in my brain as easily. So this has yeah. proven to be a great method. But I've, I've done so many things over the years. I've learned transcendental meditation mm-hmm. and every other sort of breathing mechanism you can imagine. Um, and everything works and then you move along to to something else and, you, you know, kind yeah. of find a way to right that ship that's heading for the rocks the whole Absolutely. time. Absolutely, know? yeah. And breathing, I, I one of the things that I really learned, you know, in the course of my interest also in, in some of these things is that breathing is one of the reasons why it's so phenomenal is because of that oxygen that comes into your body and, and, you know, takes care of every cell in your brain. Um, there's a very, very quick story I'll share with you of this, um, cellist. He was a famous Japanese cellist back in the eighties and he ended up having, um, stomach cancer, I believe, and was in the final stages. And culturally from the story that I read, they didn't even tell him that he was that ill, but he was, he was dying. His family knew and they said, we can't do anything for you, you know, after all the treatments. So they sent him home and he, not knowing exactly what was wrong with him, but knowing that he was dying, decided to go every morning upstairs on the roof of his house and just breathe at sunrise, just to see the sunrise every morning before he died. And what he noticed was, is that right before the light of the sun would, you know, show, the birds would start chirping and which he thought was fascinating and loved it and would just be out there and breathe. Long story short, three months later, 
he was still alive, went to the hospital, they checked, and his cancer was completely shrinking. And what he found out is the reason why birds chirp first thing in the morning is because they get the biggest rush of oxygen from the trees that awaken from the photosynthesis of the sun. And so the minute the sun's light shows up, the trees immediately release the strongest dose of oxygen early in the morning. And the birds, it's so overwhelming for their lungs that they have to sing it out so that they can actually breathe it. And that's what basically ended up being his cure. So it, it there's there's magic in this. And I wow. love that you brought that up because it's uh, another affirmation for me in, in my continued, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. My, my wife and I went to Australia uh, 12 years ago and we spent 10 days in the outback on a tour. Uh, it was very hot and very crazy and an amazing adventure, like one of the hardest things I've ever done. But we would sleep outside at nighttime just on a bivy bag just with barely any clothes on because it was like 100 degrees at nighttime. But what I did notice was that in the morning, because we were in the middle of nowhere, like we were wow. hours from a road, let alone hours from a town, like, was that the earth would breathe in the morning. You would just, it would be totally silent, like stillness, silence. And then just this wind would come along and rustle all the leaves. And it was just like you described. It was like the earth would just go... <gasps> And we're off, you know, and then wow. the flies that come up and you'd have to put a net <laughs> over your head so you wouldn't go mad. Even the flies. Yeah, that is amazing. Oh, what mm. an adventure that must have been. And uh, this has been so much fun. I, I'm amazed at, um, first of all, I'm amazed at your musical journey, of course. That's what kind of made us connect in the first place. But I have thoroughly enjoyed your um, your depth of spirit and your philosophical approach to life. Um you know, your humor has always been something that I've enjoyed, but to see also behind the humor, you know, the the majesty of the uh, the truthfulness of yourself. I, I really, really appreciated that today. And I appreciate how open and honest you've been with us. Um, this has been so delightful. Uh, before we say goodbye, I do want to do it with you what I do with every one of my guests and do a speed round rapid fire question. First thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to put you on the I just, spot. Well, I just want to get them all right now when it comes to perfectionism. Oh, no, these are, these are your questions. So <laughs> you're the only one that has the answers for these. So the first thing that comes to mind, some of them are this or that, and some of them are just first thing that comes to mind. So studio recording or touring? Touring. Country you'd like to visit and haven't visited yet? Argentina. If not the banjo, what instrument? Fiddle. No. Electric guitar. Oh, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> um, your dream duet? Bella Fleck. Mm, I agree. Yeah, that would be magical. Um, favorite U.S. city that you've visited? Ooh. Um, oh, that's a hard one. Because I, I, I love Portland, Oregon. But I also love Asheville in North Carolina. Yes. So to be split split between the two of those. Yeah, I, I love Asheville. And Austin is cool as well. That's three answers. Yeah, that's good enough. Um, birds or reptiles? Birds. Birds. Do you um, want to know why? Yeah, tell me why. Because my name in Gaelic is Aina, which means bird-like. Really? So that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so cool. Um, what would you... Uh, okay, so... What would your banjo playing superhero powers name be? Like if you were a superhero as a banjo player, what would your, what would your name be? 
Don't say banjo man or banjo guy. Something more exciting. <laughs> I was going to say ba- banjo man. No. I don't know. Come on. <laughs> I need to think about that one. Um, I Zombie slaying banjo person. <laughs> I just robbed that straight out of a movie. But it'll have to do. I love that. Um, so let's see. So vocals or instrumental tracks more do you appreciate? Instrumental. Okay. And your favorite genre of music and band or or musician? Mm. Doesn't have to be traditional, oh. like your absolute favorite. My absolute favorite album might be better. That's Tom Waits' Heart of Saturday Night. But I wouldn't say that that's my absolute favorite genre. I don't know what that is because it changes on a daily basis. Okay. That's okay. And then the final question, and it is the most important question of all because... We've been um, actually taking a statistical analysis about this. Um, it is the most important question. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Yes. Uh, as an Italian, I'm wounded. Oh, well, roasted. It has to be roasted. That sounds yeah. actually pretty good. Like grilled? But Yeah. yeah. Oh. There's a pizza place in Galway that does roast, uh, roasted pineapple. It's amazing. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. But as an Italian, mm. I, the boys... My sons are completely for pineapple on pizza. I'm a little more yeah, indignant well, about my, that. My son won't eat it without pineapple. <laughs> this was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciated chatting today. And I look forward to you guys coming back to the U.S. and dancing away and, and having more fun with We Banjo 3. And in the meantime, I wish you all the best with your continued journeys, both in music and in seeking more of ourselves and more of our reality being being who we're meant to be. So thank you so yeah. much. Thanks. Thanks, Jasmine. This podcast is produced and recorded by Dante Falk, edited and mixed by Eros Falk, original music by Dante and Eros Falk, recorded in Olympia, Washington at Casa Nostra Studios. Visit the website, jasminefalkdickerson.com. Ciao for now.